Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Astronomy. Our guest today is Paul Sutter, the author of Your Place in the Universe. This is the best summary of the history of cosmology and present-day cosmological thinking I've read since Isaac Asimov wrote The Universe half a century ago. Not only is it a fabulous book, but it's written in a style that may result in its author being summoned to Hollywood to write sitcoms in his spare time. Paul, please keep the day job, and welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you. I'd I'd be very happy to keep my day job. Terrific. Paul, what happened tomorrow? What motivated you to write this book? Yeah, I do podcasts. I do TV appearances. I, I love sharing science and what I know and love about the universe. But I realized starting a couple years ago that there were some stories that I couldn't fit in a podcast episode, that I couldn't fit in a little soundbite or an interview that it really took an entire book, many, many pages and many, many words to tell certain stories. And one of these stories is our beautiful universe and how we came to know about it. Paul, one of the things that I really liked about your book is that it just gives an excellent summary of cosmology for people who are not familiar with it. And quite frankly, I think everybody should be familiar with it. So I think a lot of people should read this book. So why don't we start How and why did the Copernican heliocentric model for the universe replace the Ptolemaic geocentric model? Yeah, for a long time, uh, many people around the world, including Europeans, uh, thought or assumed that the Earth was at the center of the universe because you see all the stuff in the sky wheeling about us from day to night and back again. And it doesn't really feel like the Earth is moving around a lot. So it's natural to assume that, and it's natural to construct cosmologies or models of the universe based on that. But starting in the late mid to late 1500s with people like Copernicus and Kepler and Tycho Brahe, we started to think something fishy was going on. And the fishiness really got going with a comet that had appeared in 1577. And everyone around the world had noticed this comet. And what struck astronomers in the, in Europe, and especially Tycho Brahe, was that they were able to finally able to get a distance to that comet. And comets for a long time had been assumed to be an earthly phenomenon, something happening in our atmosphere. Because The heavens in cosmology, the motions of the stars and the planets, they were literally closer to heaven. They were more perfect. They were more orderly than life down here on messy old Earth. But when we got this distance to a comet, it turned out to be really far away. In fact, so far away, we couldn't even measure how far away it was. This unpredictable, messy thing was coming from the supposedly perfect heavens. And about the same time, people like Copernicus were proposing, with not all that great a reason, but at least proposing that the sun was maybe at the center of the universe and that the earth revolves around the sun. There are some mathematical reasons why this might be simpler for the universe to be this way. And slowly, achingly slowly, really over the course of uh, about a hundred years, we're talking two or three generations of people, we came to accept that the earth is not the center and that the heavens are just as messy as life here on earth. It wasn't a sudden snap. It wasn't a sudden realization. It was a very slow evolution in thinking. and. you know, a grudging acceptance of the facts that nature was presenting to us. Uh, Let's fast forward a few centuries. Um, One of the great developments in cosmology, which I think happened around around 1980, is the idea of inflation. 
What is it, and why do cosmologists seem so enamored of it? Right. So inflation is this wonderful idea. So we live in an expanding universe. We discovered this about 100 years ago. A long time ago, the universe was very small. And a long, long time ago, the universe was incredibly small. This is the core of the Big Bang idea, the Big Bang model, the Big Bang theory. This is our theory, our model of the history of the universe. But this model like all models in science, isn't entirely perfect uh, or can accurately describe all the data. And after we developed Big Bang Theory in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, we started fleshing it out, had some solid evidence for it. We knew we were on the right track. But the deeper we thought about it, the more observations we made, the more we realize that this story is incomplete. There's a wrinkle to it. There's, there must be more nuance to the Big Bang story. And one of the nuances is that parts of the universe that are way far away from each other have roughly the same properties, the, roughly the same temperature, roughly the same number of galaxies. You know, they're, they're just pretty much the same. But in an expanding universe with just traditional vanilla Big Bang, these parts of the universe are too far away for light to have reached from one end to the other in the history of the universe. So if light can't communicate, light can't send information, they're too far away, then how did they end up synchronizing? Why did they end up having roughly the same temperature or the same number of galaxies? Why, was, why is the universe so homogenous at such big scales? One potential resolution to this problem is that in the extremely early universe, our entire cosmos underwent a period of ridiculously fast expansion. I can't, I can't even find the right superlative to describe this. I'm talking about when the universe was a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second old. In that an incredibly short time frame, the universe multiplied in size by something like 10 to the 52 times bigger than what it was before. And this solves this so-called homogeneity problem because before this event of inflation, the universe is small enough, it could hang out, it could homogenize, and then whoop, pieces of the universe got sent flying away from other pieces and they were no longer connected. But since they had that same seed, that same starting point, they have the same average properties. Makes a lot of sense. Um, let's jump back about three centuries to the 17th century. How did Newton and Halley devise and confirm the law of universal gravitation? Uh, the universal gravity, the most amazing part about universal gravity, Newton's theory of gravity, is the word universal. This was a tremendous watershed moment, not just in physics or mathematics, but, but in evolution of human thought. Like, really, no one had thought this way about the universe in a big way, in a major way, until Newton. Newton's big realization was that as he was sitting under an apple tree, and this is according to Newton himself, sitting under an apple tree, the apple fell to the ground, and he looked at that, and an idea sparked in him, an idea that no one else had had before. He'd already figured out laws of motion. He knew force equals mass times acceleration. He knew about equal and opposite reactions. Like, he knew all that. And he saw this apple falling from a tree. And he realized that it's moving. It, it must be accelerating. If there's an acceleration, there must be a force. Because force equals mass times acceleration. Okay, so the Earth is applying a force to the apple. But... Forces are always balanced. For every force, there's an equal and opposite force. So if the Earth is pulling on the apple with gravity, then the apple must be pulling on the Earth with gravity as well. But the Earth is a lot bigger, and so the apple moves a lot farther, but still everything is balanced. Whatever this gravity is, 
force, whatever this force is, it must act on everybody from everybody else. It must be universal. And from this, he was able to predict or calculate the speed of the moon in its orbit, which no one had been a, no one had an explanation for that before. He was just like he, he could just derive it. And he thought this was kind of nice, and he just shelved the project. He's like, oh, that's interesting. Put it on a shelf, forgot about it, worked on stuff that was more interesting. And it sat there for years until his best friend, as much as he could be a best friend to Isaac Newton, was Edmund Haley. And Edmund Haley's like, you know, I'm sure they got talking about it. And he's like, dude, you just have to publish this. And he's like, nah, no one cares. He's like, no, seriously, the world needs to know. And finally, he convinced Newton to publish it. And then Haley took this and ran. He was able to predict periods of comets, hence the Haley's comet that he was able to predict. He was able to predict an upcoming eclipse over England to an accuracy of four minutes, which no one in human history was able to do before. And just application after application of just showing, hey, whatever this gravity is, it's universal and it applies to objects falling down here at Earth, and it's the exact same force that keeps planets in orbit around the sun. What is parallax, and how did Friedrich Bessel use it to give us our first estimate of the enormity of the universe? Yeah, parallax is uh, it's when you change viewpoints, things in your field of view will tend to shift position. And the closer something is, the more it will shift position. So if you have something right up against your face and you shift from left eye to right eye and back and forth, it will wiggle left and right. And then you look at something very distant and do the same thing, it will wiggle hardly at all. So this was a well-known technique for measuring distances. You can calculate, you can measure the angle of the wiggle, you know the distance between your points of view, you build a little triangle, you calculate a little distance. And up until, as soon as we began to grudgingly accept that the Earth orbits the sun, we realized that there must be a parallax shift in the positions of the stars. As as we travel from one end of the solar system to the other, we have different viewpoints that are separated by tens of millions of miles. So we ought to see a little shift in the positions of the stars. No one could, which was a major knock against the sun-centered universe idea early on. Eventually, the sun-centered universe idea became popular for other reasons, mostly because it made horoscopes easier to predict. But eventually, but still, but still, no one could measure a distance to a star using parallax method until 1838. That's over 200 years after the after the development of the heliocentric model of the universe. And the first guy to do it was Friedrich Bessel, a self-taught amateur astronomer, self-taught polymath, absolute genius, and built a telescope himself, ran an observing program for years. He finally measured a distance to a particular star, 61 Cygni, the 61st brightest star in the constellation Cygnus the Swan. Turns out to be one of our nearest neighbors was able to get a parallax distance to it, and he measured the distance. This was the first time in human history anyone had measured a distance to a star, blew everyone's mind, and to communicate, my favorite part of the story, to communicate how far away this star was to gen- the general audience, to, to newspaper readers, he invented a new word. He invented the word light year. The distance light travels in a year, and 61 Cygni is about 10 light years away. And so thanks to Friedrich Bessel, we have this wonderful term to describe truly interstellar distances. Um, you've sort of alluded to this earlier, but why is the first second of the existence of the universe so crucial? Yeah, the first second of the universe. This is when all the interesting stuff happens. Our universe is is about 13.8 billion years old, but really after the first few seconds, it's, it's all pretty, it's all pretty boring from a high energy physics perspective. More interesting things happened in that first second 
than in the entire rest of the history of the universe. In this first second, we see the unification of the forces break down. We see the appearance of the four different forces of nature splitting off one by one from each other. We see this event of inflation that rapidly expands the universe, which we believe was triggered by one of these events of the forces of nature splitting off from each other. We see antimatter and matter start to go their separate ways, and eventually matter will win out and end up dominating the universe. We see the seeds set, microscopic tiny deviations in space-time that will eventually grow up to be stars and galaxies and the largest structures of the universe. All this fascinating physics, which we mostly do not understand, happened in a blink of an eye. Amazing. Why do we think we have a good model for the current and future universe? All scientific models are based on evidence. Nature is the ultimate arbiter of all of our models and concepts and ideas. You can't get away with anything without sufficient evidence. And in the case of the Big Bang... This idea that our universe is used to be smaller and hotter and denser in the past comes we have a solid footing on this because we have a lot of evidence that points in that direction. From one, we see galaxies flying away from each other. We see that we live in an expanding universe. And if it's expanding now, that means yesterday used to be a little bit smaller. Last year was a little bit smaller. A billion years ago, it was even smaller, et cetera, et cetera. And once you make this conclusion that you live in an expanding universe, then you can start making predictions. You can ask, well, what what would it look like? What, What are some other things that we ought to see? And one of the first things that we ought to see is that the universe was different in its past. It wasn't just smaller, but it had different states. It had different arrangements. It had a different character. It had a different flavor. And this is exactly what we do see. When we look out in the distant universe, which is the younger universe because it's taking the light all that time to reach us, we see galaxies, certain types of galaxies that we just don't see nearby, that we don't see in the present-day universe that were a product of the younger universe. And even more extreme, if you scrunch down the universe small enough and hot enough and dense enough, it completely changes state. It it becomes a plasma, high, high energy state of matter. And there's a certain trigger point in the early universe where it switches from being a plasma to being a neutral gas. And that process will liberate a lot of radiation, a lot of light. That light will soak the cosmos. When it's emitted, it will be literally white hot at around 10,000 Kelvin. But over the eons, it will cool down, it will redshift. One of the very earliest predictions of the Big Bang model is that we ought to be soaked in microwave radiation close to absolute zero, a leftover imprint from the Big Bang. This leftover imprint, unbeknownst to the theorists who are working on this idea, was accidentally discovered by microwave instrument engineers working at Bell Labs in New Jersey. They had built the world's first sensitive microwave detector, and they saw this background radiation surrounding us all the time. They had no idea. Eventually, they got together, they chatted, they realized, you know, they got connected after a couple of years, they realized what they had found, and they were published, and this was the first major prediction of the Big Bang Theory, a prediction that turned out to be true. Um, How has our view of the size of the universe changed since the end of the 19th century? Oh, yeah, so our universe just keeps getting bigger and bigger, not just because it's expanding, it's it's because we're learning more and more about it. At the end of the 1800s, we at this time, we had used parallax techniques to measure distances to a few thousand stars, and we had a rough conception of our galaxy that was 
somewhere around 10,000 light years across. That was about the limit of what we could see measure with parallax techniques. So we knew the galaxy was probably a little bit bigger than that, but we just didn't know. We didn't know how big our galaxy was. We didn't know if our galaxy filled up the universe or was just an isolated pocket surrounded by nothingness. Like we, we just didn't know. And one of the biggest debates surrounded a certain nebula, which at the time was called the Andromeda Nebula. The Andromeda Nebula you can see with the naked eye. It's pretty big. It's very bright. It's in the Andromeda constellation, conveniently enough. And astronomers in the early 1900s, or sorry, early 20th century, were obsessed with trying to get a distance measure to the Andromeda Nebula. Because we knew it was farther away than parallax, so we knew it was further away than 10,000 light years, but we just, we just didn't know. And it wasn't until uh, an astronomer by the name of Henrietta Swan Lovett realized a new way of measuring distances that didn't rely on parallax and instead relied on a certain kind of variable star that changes brightness with time. Once she made that conclusion, that realization, Another astronomer, Edwin Hubble, was able to identify these variable stars in the Andromeda Nebula, calculate a distance, and this sucker wasn't 10,000 light years away or 20,000 light years away. It was two and a half million light years away. It was an entirely separate galaxy apart from the Milky Way. And so overnight, with one set of key observations, our universe just exploded in size. You know, all of this is, you know, to me, I've always been interested in cosmology and it's all fascinating. And one of the things about your book that I liked is that you have a nice short chapter on several of the questions that puzzle people most. Perhaps you can pick a couple of your favorites and discuss them. (laughs) Yeah, so people are always, I always get a lot of questions about say the edge of the universe like if we're if the universe is expanding what is it expanding into is it nothing it is a void is it you know just what is it and i love this question and i also hate it because the answer is never ever ever satisfying but it's still the answer and the answer is that yes we live in an expanding universe it has no edge. Our universe has no edge because an edge is a boundary between two things and the universe by definition is all the things. So if there's an edge, then there's just more universe on the other side of it. And so it doesn't make sense for the universe to be expanding into more universe. Over time. I'm sorry, go ahead. Over time, galaxies get further away from each other. Period. End of story. That's what it means to live in an expanding universe. There is no center. There is no edge. It is not expanding from anything, and it is not expanding into anything. That's just the way it is, and it doesn't make any sense to our human brains, but that's exactly why we invented mathematics, so we can do new stuff. Um, Do you have any other questions that people ask a lot? People ask a lot about interstellar travel. They ask a lot about they ask about our place in the universe. So they ask about the edge. They also ask about the center. And yes, observationally, we are at the center of the universe. We're at the center of our universe. We just look around and see universe everywhere we look. Uh, but it turns out that everybody is at the center of their observational patch of the universe. So. So yes, mom, I am at the center of the universe. But so is mom. True. <laughs> Love you, mom. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe she's happy on account of it. Um, there's a concept that is very difficult for, I think, most people to grasp called vacuum energy. Perhaps you could explain that a little. Yeah, sure. So um, if you take a box... And you get rid of all the particles, all the radiation, all the neutrinos, just everything, clear, even dark matter, just out. It's all gone. And you have pure, 
100% unadulterated vacuum, there is still an energy associated with that empty box. There is an energy level baked into space-time itself. There is an energy level baked into the vacuum of space-time itself. We get this idea from something called quantum field theory. And all of physics, everything that we do and love, you know, when we go out and we run our particle collider experiments, we play baseball or whatever, all this sits on top of that energy, that bare, raw energy that's built into the vacuum space-time itself. We can't use it. We can't do work with it. We can't draw from it. It's simply the bare ground state of the universe. It's like the ground floor of the universe. It's the sea level of the universe. And then on top of that is what we live our lives on. Um, okay. One of the things that I think most people are familiar with is the idea that the universe consists of galaxies and galaxies contain stars and stars have planets around them. Um, how do the stars and galaxies form? Stars and galaxies form over the course of billions of years. It's a slow process and they build up from smaller things. So we live in what we call, and this is a fun jargon term, a hierarchical universe where bigger things are built from smaller things over the course of time. And it starts out in the very, very early universe, extremely early universe. There were no stars, there were no galaxies, there were just pockets of matter here and there that were slightly more dense than average by, you know, one part in a million. And slowly over time, because of their slightly higher density, they have a little bit stronger gravity, they pull on their neighbors, they grow a little bit, their neighbors, the neighboring regions empty out. Now they have an even stronger, more mass, so they have even stronger gravity. They pull on their neighbors even more. And so over time, the rich get richer and the poor get poor. And you end up building the first stars, the first dwarf galaxies, the first proto-galaxies, the first galaxies. Galaxies start grouping together into what we call groups. Groups start bundling together into clusters. And then right now, the super clusters are starting to form. Um, into which periods do we divide the evolution of the universe and what characterizes each period? So we have a few different ages of the universe. Right now we live in what we call the Stelliferous Era or the star forming era, the, the era full of light and nuclear fusion inside the stars. In terms of time up to the current point, this is the longest age of the universe. Prior to this, we had much more shorter-lived exotic stages of the universe, like the inflationary epoch, uh, the radiation-dominated era. These would last for, say, a, you know, a few milliseconds or a trillionth of a second, up to a few thousand years. The Stelliferous era got started about 500 million years after the Big Bang after the end of what we call the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages was the time before the first stars. This age of the universe will last a decent chunk of time, somewhere between 50 and 100 trillion years. Uh, this age will end because as time goes on, star formation is dropping. The ability of the universe to form new stars is winding down. And it's doing this because it's expanding and there's just fewer and fewer opportunities for pockets of gas to collect enough to high enough densities to start making stars. So slowly over time, the lights are going out. Once the last light goes out, our universe will pop be populated with the leftovers. These are the black holes, the neutron stars, the white dwarfs, random planets here and there. We call this epoch the degenerate era because it's, well, it's full of degenerates. And those will inherit the long-term universe. There are other possibilities that I want to discuss with you later, but one of the things that you talked about earlier is you referred to something called dark matter. What is dark matter? Why are we reasonably sure it exists? And what are some likely candidates for it? 
Yeah, we first started getting a hint of dark matter way back in the 1930s when an astronomer by the name of Fritz Wicke was looking at motions of galaxies inside of clusters of galaxies. And he found that the galaxies were moving way too fast. That that cluster should have just ripped itself apart billions of years ago. But there was something else. There was some other source of gravity that was keeping the cluster glued together, that was keeping those fast-moving, hot-tempered galaxies contained within the cluster. He didn't really know what was going on, so he just he said it, he called it dark matter, just gave it a name. It's matter they couldn't see, didn't really know what was going on, put it aside. Decades went by, and off and on, astronomers would investigate this, but not really seriously. And then in the 1970s, another astronomer by the name of Vera Rubin was looking at the motions of stars inside of galaxies, and she found pretty much the same thing. The stars are just moving too fast. If you just count up all the hot glowy bits in a galaxy or a cluster and use that to calculate how much gravitational attraction there should be inside that galaxy or that cluster, there ain't enough. There's not enough gravitational glue to keep everything inside of it going at that speed. Galaxies should have just spun themselves apart like an out-of-control carousel like billions of years ago. But no, they're just hanging on just fine. So early in the 70s and 80s, we didn't know if there really was this dark matter or if there is a form of matter that we just couldn't see, or if we were simply getting gravity wrong, like maybe Newton and Einstein were off the mark after all. But after a few decades of very careful observations of not just galaxies and clusters, but many, many other things, We've had gravitational lensing. We can look at this background light from the early universe. We can look at the stru how structures form and evolve uh, at the biggest of scales in our universe. And one by one, all the alternative theories, especially the alternative theories of gravity, just fail to reproduce observations. They just can't cut it. And if you can't cut it, you don't really bother thinking about it anymore. And the only hypothesis slash theory that has survived to the present day is that dark matter is really is a thing. It's a new kind of particle previously unknown to physics. This, whatever this particle is, it doesn't interact with light at not much, if at all doesn't interact with itself, not much, if at all, really only makes its presence known through gravity, which is how we can see it on these vast intergalactic scales. But other than that, it's pretty much invisible. A better name for dark matter is invisible matter. And we have experiments right now that are hoping to catch a stray dark matter particle through some rare chance exotic interaction. Uh, still far, those searches have turned up empty, but even though they've been empty, we've still learned a lot about what the dark matter can't be, which is also very useful. And so we're just taking things, uh, you know, one day at a time. Um, one of the concepts that's arisen over the past, oh, I don't know, half century is the idea of the cosmic web. What is the structure of the cosmic web? How did we determine it? And what is its eventual fate? Yeah, we started learning about this thing called the Cosmic Web in the late 1970s, early 1980s, when we started doing really serious galaxy surveys, when we started measuring the positions of dozens and hundreds and eventually thousands and millions of galaxies throughout our universe. It's just very, very simple. Just there's a galaxy, there's its position, calculate a distance, stick a pin on a map, move on. And it became apparent very, very quickly that galaxies in our universe are not scattered around randomly. They're not all clumped up into clusters. There's a much more rich and interesting structure there. 
there are long, thin ropes of galaxies. They are there are dense knots of galaxies, the clusters. There's broad walls of galaxies, and then there are these vast, vast, empty regions devoid of galaxies that we call the voids. And at the very largest scales, the pattern of galaxies, the structure that it forms, looks like a spider's web, a big three-dimensional spider's web. And so it has the name Cosmic Web, and the Cosmic Web is the largest pattern found in nature. And what's going to happen to it? Oh, yes. Yeah. So uh, the Cosmic Web is being unspun right now. So the, we live in an expanding universe, and 20 years ago, we discovered that the expansion of the universe is accelerating. It's getting bigger and bigger, faster and faster every single day. We call this dark energy. That's just a cool name for it. Really, it's accelerated expansion. No clue what's going on, but we know it's there. And this accelerated expansion is slowing down the agglomeration, the formation of the cosmic web, the continued evolution of the cosmic web. It's slowing it down right now, and eventually it will stop it, and then it will reverse it. So that only gravitationally bound structures that are already, already now glued together, only those will survive. So, for example, the Milky Way and Andromeda and a few other galaxies are in a structure we call the local group. It's our local group of galaxies. We're all gravitationally glued together. We are headed towards another cluster called the Virgo cluster. We will never reach the Virgo cluster. Before we reach it, the accelerated expansion of the universe will operate on the vacuum between us, and it will slow down our motion towards the Virgo cluster, stop it, and reverse it, and rip it away from us. You know, speaking of the word rip, a few years ago, I heard the idea of the big crunch and the big rip as alternatives to what could be the fate of the universe. Could you discuss those a little? Yeah, the big, so we live in the Big Bang, our universe is expanding every day. We have this dark energy, which is the idea, this observational reality that it, the expansion is getting bigger and bigger, faster and faster every day. Before we knew about dark energy, we thought maybe we might live in a universe that's expanding now, but will eventually slow down, stop, and, and then contract in on itself, and that there would be a big crunch at the end of things. But as long as dark energy keeps doing its dark energy thing, that ain't going to happen ever. And at the other end of the spectrum is what if dark energy, which we don't understand, and we haven't measured very well. We know it's there, but we haven't measured its properties very well. If dark energy happens to get stronger and stronger every day, instead of just staying constant as it is, what if it, what if itself it gets fat, stronger and stronger every day so that this accelerated expansion gets more accelerated? Well, in that scenario, which we call the big rip, not only do we get ripped away from the Virgo cluster, we would get ripped away from Andromeda. Stars would get ripped out of galaxies. Planets get ripped out of solar systems. People will get ripped off of planets. Even molecules and atoms would get ripped apart by this overwhelming energy. We honestly don't know if that is going to be a scenario, a likely scenario. We have some theoretical reasons to suspect it isn't, uh, but we don't have precise enough measurements to really tell us one way or the other yet. Yeah, that's what I thought. But I wanted, uh, uh, I remember writing about this a few years ago, and I just wanted to see if uh, that question had been resolved. So thanks a lot. What Anytime. Is the, what is the, well, this is a good time. What is the great attractor? Yeah, so so we're moving towards Andromeda. We're uh, our local group is coalescing together. We're as a group moving towards Virgo, and us and Virgo and a few other clusters and groups are all together moving in a common direction towards something that we call the Great Attractor. The Great Attractor, sitting at the center of the Great Attractor, is another massive cluster called the Norma Cluster. 
And if it weren't for dark energy, we would eventually merge into that great attractor into the normal cluster. But thankfully, the great attractor is only a temporary thing. It's it's amazing how, you know, how one of the things that has always fascinated me about cosmology is that here we are sitting on Earth and we've figured all this stuff out. It's, I think, one of the great achievements of uh, of the human race. And more people. Oh. Yeah, more people should know about it. More people should read your book because it tells that story. Um, anyway, what is the basic geometry of the universe? Do we know anything about that? Oh, yeah. So we know the basic geometry of the universe, or at least we've measured it very precisely. And geometry is a story of, of curvature, of how parallel lines behave at very, very large scales. You know, the, the universe could be flat like a piece of paper. It could be curved like the Earth. It could be curved in the opposite way like a horse saddle. And we've taken measurements of the cosmic microwave background, which is this leftover light from the early universe when it switched from being a plasma to being neutral, that light has traveled tens of billions of light years through the age of the universe to reach us. And if our universe is curved in any big way, then that light will get distorted in a very specific way since it was emitted. At the, cosmic, at the time of the cosmic microwave background. And it hasn't. So as far as we can tell, and we've measured this to surprisingly high precision, our universe is flat. It is geometrically flat. It means parallel lines will stay parallel forever. Um, one of the things that uh, is a little... Im- also extremely impressive is that we can sort of describe what is going to happen in the universe over certain periods of time. And you've discussed, for instance, the infinitesimal period of during inflation, then I think was the radiation period, then the stelliferous period. But one of the things that we've done is we've sort of mapped out what's going to happen to the universe. And could you give us a brief look at the next few quintillion years um, what's quintillion? Quintillion is 10 to the 18th, I think, years of the evolution of the universe. No, maybe yeah, quintillion yeah. is... No, that's right, 10 to the 18th. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot, a lot of lot. zeros. So after, after the stars die out, and we're in the degenerate era, and we're dominated by white dwarfs and black holes, neutron stars, planets, eventually all those start to decay as well. Oh, and I should mention by this time that because of the normal expansion of the universe, all other galaxies have been ripped from view. They are now uh, accelerating away from us faster than the speed of light, and so we can never see them again. The Milky Way and Andromeda and all of our other members of the local group have merged together into a single mega galaxy. Those stars that were members of that mega galaxy slowly escape over time, like if they just happen to get ejected through chance gravitational interactions, then they either fall into the central supermassive black hole, or they get ejected altogether, in which case the accelerated expansion of the universe just rips them away. So in the long-term universe, each pocket of the universe, each observable bubble of the universe, just has a single object in it. A single planet, a single black hole, a single neutron star. And slowly over time, through quantum mechanical effects, all macroscopic objects dissolve. Even black holes through Hawking radiation slowly lose mass. And so particle by particle, bit of radiation by bit of radiation, these things, all macroscopic objects essentially dissolve and melt. And then the universe is dominated just by fundamental particles by protons, by electrons, by radiation, by neutrinos. We're pretty sure the protons themselves eventually dissolve into their constituent parts. And so you just have, at the long-term fate of the universe, like after 10 to 100 years, you just have a 
thin soup of fundamental particles completely isolated from each other, steadily approaching a temperature of absolute zero. And that's it. Is that what is meant by the heat death of the universe? Yes, that's exactly the heat death of the universe. And that is the fate of the universe if dark energy keeps doing its thing, where it's the the death of heat, the death of heat differences, the death of the ability to do work and have interesting things. Yeah, well, it's going to take a while. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I suppose. Okay, now, even though uh, I haven't listed this as one of the potential questions, I've got to ask this. One of the theories that exists at the moment is something called the multiverse, which I must admit I'm particularly attracted to, if only for philosophical reasons. And I'm hoping you can discuss this a little and whether or not it would ever be possible to establish whether or not this is the way the universe is and what would be the possibilities that might exist in the world, or rather in the universe, if the multiverse theory holds. Right. So multiverse concept comes about in a few different areas of physics, and what's most relevant for cosmology and has the most potential to be observable or better understood is the multiverse idea that actually comes about in certain theories of inflation. In our theories of that incredibly early universe with that very momentous event where the universe got really big really fast, a lot of inflation theories, perhaps all of them, we're not exactly sure about that, say that that wasn't the only inflation event to ever happen, that the whole entire universe is much larger than our observable bubble and also much larger than just the single entity that inflated. There are always pockets of the universe that are still inflating somewhere way out there at some unimaginably far but calculable distance away. There is another Big Bang happening over there with its own population of stars, its own population of galaxies, its own population of of podcast episodes with interviews with authors, the whole deal. And in inflation theory, some of those universes might even have different physics, not just the four that we know and love here, but different arrangements of matter and energy of of the ground state of the universe. And in principle, there can be an infinite number of these universes somewhere out there all operating in parallel. We don't know for sure, theoretically, because we don't fully understand inflation. We don't fully understand the mechanics of it, what triggered it, the the fundamental physics behind it. So we're not exactly sure if multiverse is a generic property of inflation or not. And it could be tested. Multiverse has been tested. Uh, If we happen to get so lucky that another universe uh, nucleates or bubbles up right next to ours and temporarily intersects ours, before we get ripped apart from the inflation between us, uh, might leave an imprint in the cosmic microwave background. It might leave an imprint in the arrangement of galaxies. We've gone hunting for that, and we haven't seen anything. It doesn't rule out multiverse, but at the present time, we have no evidence for the existence of the multiverse. Um, I found that last discussion of yours extremely interesting because... um, your My interpretation of what you just said was that from the standpoint of cosmology, the multiverse arises because of the different properties that inflation might have. And the theory that has always attracted me is uh, um, Hugh Everett's Many Worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, which I think gives a different view of what the multiverse could be. Right, exactly. And so that's One of the other conceptions of the multiverse comes from quantum mechanics and how you really don't know the outcome of of an experiment until you actually run the experiment. And that's a, the many worlds interpretation is a mathematical way of, of, of really interpreting that fundamental quantum rule of our universe. Uh, It doesn't itself provide a mechanism for generating universes or the universes having different results. Um, And that is probably the most well-known idea of the multiverse, but 
the action, but that is of itself just an interpretation of quantum mechanics. It's not necessarily measurable or testable. It's more like a story we tell ourselves because we don't fully understand the mathematics. Uh, the multiverse that appears in cosmology is a physical hypothesis uh, grounded in physics and math as best we can understand it and is testable, at least in some way. Paul, this has been an absolutely fascinating interview. And um, I'd like to ask if you have any ongoing projects that might interest our listeners and how our listeners can get in touch with you. Yeah, so your listeners, uh, this has been a really fun interview for me, too. Uh, listeners can find me mostly on my website, paulmsutter.com. That's paulmsutter.com. It has links to all my projects, like my podcast and YouTube series, Ask a Spaceman, uh, various video projects I do, uh, various TV appearances, various articles I write for space.com, for live science. Uh, and there's one project in particular that uh, I'd really love to tell people about. I enjoy working with artists and especially dancers to explore some of these these very puzzling and bedeviling concepts from multiple angles. And I'm working with Siren Modern Dance in New York on a project called TikTok, where we explore the nature of time through a narration provided by me and movement and Mozart. And we just had a performance in Bryant Park a couple weeks ago, and we'll be on stage uh, around the country starting in late 2019 and going into 2020. And so check out silentmoderndance.org and you can find out more about the project and where we'll be on stage. Paul, thank you so much and best of luck with the book. Thank you.